All right, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Josiah. If we haven't met yet, I want to welcome you to Harvest Church. If this is your first time, thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us. Um, I am currently pretty new to this church. It's been about a year and a half, but I am currently a full-time student at RTS Seminary here in Oviedo, as well as serving as our youth ministry director for our middle and high school students. Um, it's been about a full year since I started that, and it's been an awesome ride and journey. Um, today we're going to look into God's word as we see and hear about God's love for us and the gospel played out in the Old Testament. At his wife's funeral, the great African-American preacher, Reverend Evie Hill, said this in his eulogy. He said, I received in my wife a gift that only God could give. My wife was well-bred. She was the born to her PhD recipient from Cornell University and came from a wealthy home, but she was an encourager. When I was younger, I invested in a car service station. She protested, but I was stubborn, and I did it anyway, and I lost it all. I thought, as I came home that night, I thought she would break me and tell me I told you so. But instead I came to a home that was lit with candles. She told me it's been about six months since our marriage. I thought it'd be nice to celebrate by a candlelight dinner. Only she forgot to light a candle in the bathroom. And so when I went in there, no lights turned on. I said, baby, did they cut the lights off? She began to cry. You work so hard, she said, and we're trying. And I didn't have the money to pay the power bill, and I didn't want you to know. She could have said, I've never been in such worse shape before. I could be with another man in a house where the lights are never cut off. When I received death threats for our ministry, I received a note that I would not make it until the morning. I woke up that morning with my wife not beside me in the bed. I looked out the window and the car was gone. I thought to myself, I cannot blame her. But then she rolled into the driveway with the car, and I went out and asked what happened. She said, it occurred to me that someone might have planted a bomb in your car, so I wanted to drive off with it to make sure it wouldn't harm you. Such an example of marital faithfulness is commendable, laudable, something that's worthy to be praised and celebrated, especially in a landscape where affairs and unfaithfulness and infidelity leads to divorces. The reason we marvel at the marital faithfulness of Reverend Evie Hill and his wife is because the faithfulness held their marriage together. And faithfulness is highly valued in our culture because it's a scarce commodity. Now, if you're single, a question that's posed to you a lot sometimes is, what do you want in your future spouse? And naturally, all of us desire good and noble things. But what if God told you that the one you're supposed to marry was to be stripped of every good and noble thing? What if the one defining characteristic of the spouse that you should seek should be brokenness and promiscuity and unfaithfulness? Today, we're going to look at a man who was commanded that exact thing, to love his promiscuous wife unconditionally, which is just a small taste and a symbolic reflection of God's love for us. The title of this message is His Promises for Our Promiscuity, which hints at an exchange. And promiscuous or promiscuity meaning being loose or having many sexual encounters with other people or being unfaithful. God promises to faithfully love us forever and that's exchange for our unfaithful behavior. But today's message is less about the marriage between a husband and a wife and more about the analogy that Scripture uses to define us as God's covenant people in our marriage to God himself. In the past year of 2019, have you, how have you been in your faithfulness to God? Have you kept God as the main thing, devoid of distractions, as Pastor D.L. preached last Sunday? Or has your heart become distracted with idols of the self and the pleasures of sin? Is your heart prone to wander from the fold of God? Is the word of God before you 
at all times, or do your eyes divert to make something else the center of your life? The main thrust of today's message is this, that though we are continually spiritually unfaithful to our God, he pursues us with the fervor and love that is costly, but a love that delights in us and a love that seeks to transform and restore us. To provide some context before we read the text, at the time of Hosea, the nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. So there's the nation of Israel in the north that has about 10 tribes, and then there's the, the kingdom of Judah in the south. And Hosea was a prophet who was commissioned to be the main prophet for Israel in the north. And his ministry came at a time from around 750 to 722 years before Christ. And in 722, what happened, what was big, was Assyria, the neighboring country, came and invaded and took all of Israel into captivity and exile. The prophet's role in the Old Testament was to call out the political and social and moral, but especially the religious corruption and decadence in which the people of God had strayed from God's standards. Israel at the time was enjoying immense prosperity and affluence, And so Hosea's warning was this, even though things are good, and because things, especially because things are good, you have forgotten God as your first love. And as a result, you're headed invariably for destruction. I think affluence is seldom friendly to the gospel because our hearts become breeding grounds for a carnal security and self-confidence where we're comfortable enough that we don't need God. And so for Israel, God simply became one of many things, which made Hosea's job difficult in trying to undo the spiritual callousness of the hearts that were hardened by material riches and were desensitized to God's spirit. The people of Israel instead turned to the foreign god of Baal. And Baal signified two things, fertility and prosperity. And they started to attribute their success and their comforts to Baal. The people's hearts were far from God. And in the ways that they worshiped Baal, there were a lot of lewd sexual practices where people would be promiscuous and they would engage in actions with each other and in prostitution. But before we condemn this people, I have to ask us, are we that different? Has wealth marred us and caused us to not see God for who he is Has the love for materialism and wealth derailed you from keeping God as the main thing? Is God your main thing, or is he just one of many things? If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Hosea, to the first chapter. Hosea is the first of 12 minor prophets, and it comes after the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. We're going to to look at chapter 1, verses 2 to 9. So you can follow along with me, or you can listen to me as I read it out. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom or prostitution, and have children of prostitution, for the land commits great prostitution by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When Gomer had weans, no mercy... She conceived and bore another son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. And it's a harsh indictment and warning that God gives to the nation of Israel. So today's message is pretty scandalous. God is calling Hosea to specifically marry a prostitute because that will be a symbolic representation of how Israel has been unfaithful to God. So Hosea is this young man who has just come out of ministry. He's fresh out of seminary, we can imagine. He's single, impressionable, and he's really pumped 
of how to begin in ministry. And he says, God, where do you want me to start? I could be a teacher for Sunday school with children. I could be a youth teacher. Or maybe if the need's great, I could even be in women's ministry. But God's confounding and challenging directive came out of shock to seek out and marry a prostitute. And a note must be made here that God instituted marriage from the very beginning of creation for good. And that helps to frame our theological portrait. It helps to put God's jealousy in perspective because God's jealous in his love for us, not in the ways that we are jealous in our human love, in the ways that we are petty or paranoid or insecure, but God's love for us exclusively wants us. And second, it puts Israel's apostasy and unfaithfulness into perspective. Throughout the Bible, God has used the analogy of marriage because that's the most committed relationship we'll face on this earth. And the the idea is that God has married himself to Israel, who didn't deserve him, and that carries on to the New Testament where God has married us, the church. So Hosea is called to marry and commit to Gomer, despite her past history and despite the potential of what she could do to destroy and to hurt him. Every name in the Bible carries some significance, and there's a spiritual consequence behind it. My parents named their greatest child Josiah. That's me, hello. So it wasn't, the name Josiah means fire of God, so it wasn't really my fault when I burned down a shed in middle school. But Hosea's name means salvation, which is actually very close to the name of Jesus, which Jesus comes from Joshua, which means God saves. Gomer means completion. And they have three children out of their marriage. Their first child, their son is named Jezreel. And what that means is God, the Almighty, sows, or he scatters. And it's a warning that God will scatter Israel if they no longer remain faithful to him. And the second child is no mercy, their daughter. And it's a warning that God says, I will no longer have mercy on you as my people. And finally, the last son is not my people. Because God says, if you continue in this path, I will reject you as being my people. So if you turn with me now, we're going to turn to the next page to our main text, which is Hosea chapter 3. And I'm going to read the whole thing, just verses 1 through 5. And I'll read it for us. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethic of barley. And I said to Gomer, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So from this text, we see three thoughts about God's love for us. And the first thought is this, that God's love is costly. God's love is costly. Gomer's way of earning a living was through the selling of her body to pleasure other men sexually. And based upon her performance and how she could pleasure people, she was given her wages to sustain and live for herself. That was her past life. And after being married and having three children, she actually goes back into that lifestyle of prostitution where she's again having to perform for people. And God gives a scandalous command to Hosea. Go again, as it says in verse 1. Love a woman who is loved by another man. By rights, by instituted laws in this time, Hosea could have had her stoned to death. But instead, God not only says retrieve her, but love her. And so we see that with God's costly kind of love, God exhorted Hosea to love with an unconditional love, to love without logical reason, and to love beyond a reasonable limit. And there are two 
types of costs that come with Hosea's love that we see. First, there's a cost of humiliation and the grieving of emotional turbulence. I think you really have to search deep in the depths of your heart for an unearthly kind of grace and forgiveness to forgive a spouse who not only cheated on you once, but many times, and chooses that lifestyle. So I want you to imagine with me and repaint this picture of Hosea and place yourself in his shoes. And so if you're married, I would just invite you, just frame it so that you're Hosea and your spouse is Gomer. And if you're not yet married, I want you to frame your parents' marriage in mind. That one of your parents is Hosea and the other is Gomer. So place yourself in Hosea's shoes. What do you do? Your marriage to a prostitute has gone pretty well, as best as it could go. You have three children, but you wake up one morning, and she's not there. And you search the house. And you ask your children, have you seen your mother? And they say no. And then you look through your neighborhood, and you call out through the streets, but your wife is gone. And it slowly dawns on you with deep humiliation that your wife has gone back into a lifestyle of prostitution. But you're Hosea. You're the most famous pastor or prophet in Israel. You're the beacon of hope for this nation, and yet you can't even keep your wife in your own home. Gomer is gone, and she believes that, the pers- that her pursuit of love can be purchased, and that love is about self-gratification and how it can please her. But before we condemn her, again the question asks us, are we so different ourselves? Do we also buy into this idea that love can be purchased and that our love is centered around our self-gratification? So now God has, now that your wife is gone and Gomer is gone, God has commanded you to go out and search for her and to bring her back. Imagine walking through the streets. Friends, when you look for a prostitute, where do you go to search? In what kind of neighborhoods do you go to And what kind of men do you ask? How scathing and scandalous is that search? And how painful is that pursuit as Hosea goes from door to door in the red light districts, knocking on brothel to brothel, asking different men, have you seen my wife? Her name is Gomer, and she's a prostitute who might have been around here a couple of days ago. And then he finds out that his wife, Gomer, is being sold as a personal slave in a city square. And so he comes upon the city square, and he sees her on a platform in front of everyone, stripped and humiliated with her head down in deep shame. And the auctioneer is doing what we call in modern parlance, he's sex trafficking her, and he calls out her value and her price. You see, the, the going rate for a slave at the day in these days as we see from Exodus 21, 32, is 30 shekels of silver. And as we see that she's being sold, maybe the auctioneer starts out low. And with the collection of a motley crew of drunken men, we hear men spitballing low values of her. And he says, for this wife, for this prostitute, there's 10 shekels of silver. That's the starting bid. And you hear out 10 shekels. Another says 12. Another asks out, is she even worth 12 shekels? And as Gomer keeps her head down in shame, she hears an all too familiar voice of her husband, I'll buy her. I'll buy her. I have 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. It's all I have, but I'll buy her. As we see in verse 2, Hosea says, so I bought her. And what that indicates is the lowness that she has stooped down to. She is no longer freely going about earning her wages, but she has stooped so low in her life that she's become someone else's slave. She's being sold. And so the second thing that we see with the cost is that God's love costs everything. And if you can imagine that the details penned out in verse 2 are so important for us to see. Hosea can't scrounge around for 30 shekels of silver. He comes up incomplete. And part of it is, if you can imagine, he's at home 
looking underneath every couch pillow, behind every piece of furniture for maybe a lost coin, asking his children, will you help me look? And say, Dad, why do we have to look for more money? It's to buy back your mother from prostitution. And they don't have enough, so he goes into the kitchen and opens all the cabinets, takes all he has out of there, all of their food, because maybe that will make up for with the price. But it's not enough, so he goes door to door, from neighbor to neighbor, from church person to church person, knocking and saying, will you give me a little silver or barley to spare? Why, Hosea? Because I need to buy back my wife from prostitution. It cost Hosea all of his wages. And not only so, but his sustenance and his living for not only himself, but his three children. And it begs the question for us to look, is Gomer the prostitute worth all of that? And what Pastor Brian Lord says is that if it does not cost you anything, it's not love. C.S. Lewis also says, love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. To love it all is to be vulnerable. If you want to keep your love intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. These are my two best friends in the world, my parents, James and Faith Cha. They have a very unorthodox and unconventional approach to dating. Uh, on my dad's, on their third date, my dad popped the question, to which my mom said yes. And it was a surprise for us, but as their wedding day approached, so too came the day when my mom would have to tell the truth to my dad about her condition. You see, when she was in college, she came down with two tumors on her ovaries, and after surgeries, left her with half of an operating ovary and is whopping 0% chance in having children in the future. And so on one of their dates, she told my dad, I have something to tell you. But for two hours, she couldn't get herself to muster the courage to tell him about her condition because earlier when she was dating, someone had rejected her for that very disability. And she feared that though she was now engaged, that my dad would break off the engagement because of what he now knows. And so my dad, being the typical guy, had this like web of conjectures in his head, and he's thinking like, oh my gosh, maybe she's like a serial killer or has like a slew of marriages in the past. But she says, she tells my dad, James, I'm not going to be able to have children. And my dad said, that's it? That's it, Faith? That's what's been keeping you silent all this time. We can, of course, adopt. And that kind of love is one that, as C.S. Lewis stated, is one that's vulnerable with my mom in sharing the true state of herself. But it's one that was also costly because it required my dad to commit to and embrace to a future and a potential where he would not have any natural children. But that's the kind of love that they embraced. And I stand before you today here, which is a testament that our God is a God of miracles, and I'm a miracle child. My sister does, though, tell me all the time I'm adopted, so that might be true. I don't know. <laughs> but our parents, my parents' love came at a cost, the cost of a potential in their future. And as we consider costly love, it would be remiss for us to read Hosea 1 through 3 and not see ourselves in the story. You see, you and I are Gomer. We're Gomer. And, and the question now becomes, how does Gomer surface in your life? We're Gomer every time we search for an unconditional love where it cannot be found. We're Gomer when we turn our backs to the Father and we elevate ourselves and our needs and our wants and our pursuits of pleasure and self-gratification of sex and pornography and alcohol and substances in wasting time in social media, and in worshiping our cultural idols? Do you persist in looking for true love where it cannot be found? Do you keep leaving home as Gomer did, where the one who loves you adorns you as my beloved? So recognize first that you are Gomer, but recognize too that this love that Hosea and God has for Gomer's is one where you are the object of God's obsession and delight. There are times when you may settle into self-hate and cease to believe in yourself, 
But the message of Hosea is that God does not abandon you even when you consider yourself to be unacceptable. The grace of God is not the same as our grace. Our human grace has limits. Our love has limits. But the grace of God is what God does for us, that in which we cannot do for ourselves. You see, Israel at her worst could not overcome God at his best. You and I are the same. We cannot exhaust the ocean of love that God has for us and his love and delight for us. He loves the loveless and he loves the worthless. And it's enough for him that it costs him everything. And we see this in Romans 5, 8, and it says, when Paul says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that thought continues in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ, it is by grace you have been saved. God's love costs everything to find you and to rescue you. And it's not because of what is good inside of you. It's because of the inherent goodness that's in our Father. And it leads us to our second point, that God's love for us is driven by his delight, not by our obedience. God's love for us is driven by his delight, not our obedience. And as we look back into the passage in Hosea 3, 2 and 3, it says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore belong to another man. So shall I be to you. Notice what doesn't happen. Hosea doesn't come up to the platform and say, and bargain with, with his wife and say, if I buy you back, you have to be faithful and you have to commit yourself to me. You can't play these stupid games anymore. The chronological order is switched. Hosea purchased hers, purchases her back, and then he provides the standards and the stipulations, harsh and stringent as they may be. But he renews his wedding vows with her and says, you must be faithful to me, and so shall I be faithful to you. This is so backwards and incomprehensible to Gomer. Because all her life, she has had to put forth her performance to pleasure people. And for the first time, someone chooses and purchases her, not for what she can give, but because of who she is. Pastor Judas Smith says that men would buy her to use her but Hosea buys her to heal her. And that's the incomprehensible love that Hosea has for his wife. And it's paramount to saying that I purchased you for who you are, not for anything you've done to make restitution and to merit my purchase and, and your freedom and emancipation, but my love is, is solely because you are my wife and I am committed to you. When my parents moved to Columbia, South Carolina, to attend seminary at Columbia National University. Dr. Robertson McQuilkin was serving as president of the time and on faculty, but he was also caring for his beloved wife, Muriel, who was at this time suffering from advanced stages of Alzheimer's four decades into their marriage. In that same year, they lost their eldest son in a car accident. But Dr. McQuilkin struggled. Was he to continue in shepherding the seminary and serving as president and give and continue in his career or was he to step back to take care of his wife full time he realized that to put god first meant to put first his responsibility in marriage and so he prayerfully decided to resign in 1992 and he gave this resignation speech he said my dear muriel has been in failing mental health for about 8 years so far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities, but recently it has become apparent that Muriel is content to most of the time she is with me, and almost none of the time I'm away with her. But it's not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search for me when I leave home. The walk to school is a mile-round trip. She would make that trip almost 10 times a day, and come home with bloody feet because she forgot to put on her shoes. So it's clear to me that I must step back and take care of her full time. The decision to resign was made in a way 42 years ago 
when I promise to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. Integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. Didi, however, can be grim and stoic, but there's more to this. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wisp I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her. I get to care for her. It is a high honor and delight to care for such a wonderful person. You see, McCulkin's love for his wife was centered around delight for who she was because she couldn't contribute anything to anymore. And how could she? Alzheimer's had taken away her speech, her motor functions, and her ability to walk. But as McCulkin stepped away from his illustrative career and cared for his wife, he found that it unlocked a whole new level and plan of his love for each other. And that he discovered that in his love for Muriel was a complete description reflection of God's love for us, that we are entirely helpless and completely dependent on a God who needs to rescue us. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is a group and collection of questions and answers that contain biblical truths. And so the first question that's asked is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to worship God and to enjoy him forever. And I think we understand, we can like wrap our minds around this concept of what it means to glorify God. If you've grown up in the church, glorifying God entails like, you know, spending time in the word, gathering together on Sunday to worship corporately, and even serving the marginalized and the lost and the broken and making disciples of all nations. But what does it mean to enjoy God forever? And I think the answer eludes us. And so I want to submit to you that you will never know how to enjoy God until you realize how much God enjoys you. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is not how can I find God, but how can I be found by God? Not how can I know and love God, but how can I be known and loved by God? Can you accept that you are worth looking for? That God has a real desire to simply be with you. In Psalm 18, 19, it says that he brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. God's love is not only costly in its search for you, but it delights when it has found you. And what's false, what we've bought into his mindset is this, is that if we change, then God will love us. But what the gospel states is that because God loves us, we can change. In Romans 2, 4, it says that it is God's kindness that leads to our repentance or to our transformation, not our repentance that leads to God's kindness. And it's in repentance when we choose to turn away from sin and our old lifestyle of death and we turn to God that we understand and truly experience true transformation, which leads us to our third point, that God's love transforms us from, becoming, from being a Gomer to becoming a Hosea. God's love transforms us from being a Gomer to becoming a Hosea. The good news of the gospel is that God's transformation is brought about by our repentance and trust in Christ. The way we know that God's love is real and tangible in our lives is if we become Hosea. As Hosea, we pursue the unlovable, we remain faithful to the unfaithful, and we proffer love to those who reject it time and time again in hopes that one day that they will experience and appreciate and receive the love that God has for them. You see, what's a twist to this story is that Hosea was at one point Gomer. You and I, we used to be Gomer. But then when we have tasted God's grace and the richness of his free gift to us, not only does it transform our lives and our hearts, but it, we are called to become a Hosea, to search out the lost and the gomers in our lives. One of the most heartwarming moments 
in um, BBC's TV show, Sherlock, comes in the finale in season three. And some of you might know what, what I'm going to share. But Sherlock's best friend, John Watson, is married to Mary Watson. But he discovers a shocking truth about his wife, Mary. He, does, he hasn't realized who she really is. She's described as one of the world's deadliest assassins, and one character in the show describes her as a devil walking on two feet. He doesn't even know her full name and her real name. And so as he's reeling from the hurt and the pain of all, this, all, all these lies, Mary gives him a collection of files that documents all of her history of murders and atrocities. And she gives him, along with that, a somber message. If you love me, don't read it in front of me, because when you finish it, you won't love me anymore. And months after this revelation, they don't speak for months, but at Christmas time, they find themselves at Sherlock's home. And John takes aside his wife, Mary, to the fireplace. And he tells Mary, Mary, I've thought long and hard of what to say to you. I've chosen these words with care. The problems of your past are your business. The problems of your future are my privilege. That's all I have to say, and that's all I need to know. And with that, he took the files and threw it into the fireplace, not ever reading or knowing the duplicitous life of his wife that she had led. Um, I began to understand a little bit more of what it means to be Hosea. A question I'm asked every now and then is, are you dating? And the answer is yes, I am dating. She's beautiful, and her name is Harvest Youth Ministry. Um, <laughs> before the past year, I've had the privilege of serving as a youth director for our middle and high school students. And I think the real milestone for my life came in our summer retreat at Synod. Because it was after that mark was when students really started to open up to me and share their lives and their brokenness and sin with me because I think they started to trust me a little bit more. I remember last fall, it was, this past fall was my birthday, and one of my favorite things to do is to worship with some of my favorite people. And so it was after SNF, and we were singing some songs, and I wanted to sing the song, Save Us, O God, which is an old song over our youth ministry. And the crux of it says that, God, would you not pass us by, but would you be faithful to us, even when we have sinned and fallen away from you? And it came to a point where I couldn't continue because I was choked up by the words and the heart. And at that point, I think in that stretch of time, I was really overwhelmed by the breath and the height and death of the brokenness of our students. And it would grieve me to see the times our students would make mistakes, and choose a path that wasn't of God and of sin. And so after that SNF, I remember receiving a text from one of our students asking me to come over. And the self-inflicted wounds on their arms spoke with the same measure and intensity of their tears. And I remember the following Wednesday, just attending, we finished our seminary class, and we were taking this class called Hebrew Exegesis, where we translate the book of Jonah from Hebrew to English. And Wednesdays are great at seminary because we get free lunch, and so I'm, I'm getting lunch with my good friend Brad, who's old enough to be uh, my father. And he asked me, how's youth ministry going? It's tough, I said, and I, I started to cry. And he shared his tears with me. And he, I said, it's, it's tough to sit with the sin and brokenness of our students and how much it grieves my heart to have to have these tough conversations with students and confront them in their sin. And he reminded me about what we had just learned in class. At the book of Jonah, it talks about everything big, like, like Texas. Everything is big in Texas. And, and everything is big in Jonah, where Jonah flees from God on this big ship, and he's, this great fish swallows him when this great storm is hurled at him by God. And it spits him out into Nineveh, where he's supposed to go and preach this great message of repentance to a great city that has great sin. And all the greatness of Jonah and, and the magnitude of that is to highlight the great mercy of God. And what Brad reminded me was, Josiah, you, you're a messenger, but you're not their savior. 
you are called to be like a Hosea to them. So being a Hosea to the youth students is the privilege of holding long conversations in our parking lot after Asenath is over. Being a Hosea is to have the privilege of tenderly receiving their tears and hearing their stories of pain and sin. Being a Hosea to our youth students is a privilege of being the father to the prodigal and elder sons who grew up without a dad. Just recently, I found myself in Kobe's room at 2 a.m. a few weeks ago, and in tears he shared about how hard it is as a young man to navigate high school with all of the pressures of performance to please and to pleasure and to prove himself to his friends, to our church family as a worship leader, and to his family. And as I sat with him, I just reminded him of what God did when he spoke to his son in Mark 1, that God tore open the heavens and said to his son, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And that's the same message that applies to Kobe. It's the same message that applies to you this morning, that God looks at you and he says, you are my son, you are my daughter, with you I am well pleased. And being a Hosea for me didn't mean solving all of Kobe's problems. It meant sitting there in that moment with him and simply reminding him of the gospel at that time. Who are the gomers in your life that you are called to reach out to? The same dogmatic desire that Christ hounded after me is the same tenaciousness that God is calling me for these youth students. The same emotional endurance and shame that Christ bore in his search for me is the same in the spiritual brothels of this world is the same emotional sacrifice that I am called to offer up to God in search for those who are lost. And the same hands that guided me off the auction platform and away from a life of prostitution are the same hands that I am called to proffer to the gomers and the lost and the destitute and the marginalized. Being a Hosea means loving those who will ultimately reject you, not once, not twice, and not even 70 times seven. And the question is, at what lengths will you go to bring back the gomers back home? Dorothy Sayers was the first woman to graduate from Oxford University. She is a mystery novel writer, much like Agatha Christie. And in her series of mystery novels, she writes, she creates a central character named Lord Peter Whimsey, who's a single man who solves crimes. But as the stories develop, we realize that he's fragmented, he's alone. He struggles with loneliness. He's hurt and incomplete. And so he, in, he meets a new character who is Harriet Vane. Harriet Vane is the first graduate from Oxford University and is also a mystery novel writer herself. And the two fall in love and get married. And in their marriage, Harriet Vane heals and completes what Lord Peter Wimsey didn't have. What Dorothy Sayers did was she created a character who is incomplete. And as she installed her story, what he was lacking, she wrote herself into the story to heal him and to complete him. Jesus Christ did the same for us. The author of our lives who writes our stories looked into the world that he created. He looked into humanity's world but more than that, he looked into your life and he saw you hurt in sin and headed to, de to death and he wrote himself into our story. Jesus demonstrates that love is not just an emotion. Love will never be pure until it's coupled with the will to be committed and faithful forever. And Jesus is committed to restoring his bride and so here, what happens in Hosea chapter 2, when God promises to restore Israel as his bride, and this is the same promise of restoration that he has for us as a church, that he has for you and me. It says in, in chapter 2, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, 
And in that day, declares the Lord, I will call, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from your lips, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make a covenant with them on that day. With the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the creepy things of the ground, I will abolish the bow, and I will take care of war and sword from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast mercy and in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. <coughs> and in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will call not my people, you are my people, and I am your God. Our Hosea has come. Jesus came to this world 2,000 years ago, and he paid the 15 shekels of silver and the homer and lethic of barley for us. It cost him everything. When Jesus was arrested and unfairly tried, the one who sold him out sold him for 30 shekels of silver in Matthew 26. That's the cost of what it took. Jesus fulfilled every part of Hosea's gospel for our lives today. Through the cross, we see the height and death of our sin, the cost of God's love. But it's also in the cross and in that picture that we see the extent of God's delight for us as he died with arms outstretched to embrace and to invite all of humanity to himself. And through the empty tomb, we see that there is hope in future transformation, transformation and restoration for our lives. And God's telling you today that he's not afraid of your story. The problems of your past are your business, and it's one that he is not approved of, but the problems of your future are his privilege. The only question that remains on Jesus' mind for you is how much, how much is the cost to refine you and redeem you? Because I'll pay for all of it. And he did for our sake. There's no end to the affection that Christ has for you. God's love for you is the undaunted, unending, and unwearied by anything that you do. God's love for you has existed before rejection was even possible. And it will still be there for you, even when we reject the tender and warm hands of the Father. God's love is a love that always wants to welcome home. It's a love that wants to celebrate. And if you're lost today, whether you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, whether you are lost in sin or suffering or brokenness, the way home is the way that Hosea, our Hosea, Jesus Christ, has carved out for us in that dirty and messy search to rescue us and to find us and save us from our sins and from ourselves. I'm gonna invite you to join me in praying and reflecting over what we've just heard. As we go into time of just reflection, I wanna ask you, where are you today where does God have to search for you? And what sort of spiritual brothels are you found in? How messy is the search that God has to go? Because let me tell you that despite how messy you think it might be, it's not sufficient to keep God at bay. Jesus' love for you is one that breaks down walls and climbs over mountains to find you. It's the one that will pay at any cost 15 shekels and a homer and lethic of barley to redeem you. That's the extent of God's love for you. And my hope and prayer is that it may become real and tangible and experienced in our hearts and the Spirit may redeem and transform our hearts so that not only do we understand that there's a cost to it, but that God delights in us and that delight is a result of the overflow of God's love for us. And, and as we live, we are called not only to stay as a Gomer, but to be transformed and called to be a Hosea. To seek out and search the lost, the wayward, the unfaithful. So take some time to reflect in your heart. Where are you? 
And how is God delight? How does he sing over you? And in what ways are you called to be a Hosea to other Gomers? I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Um, Jesus, we thank you for the gospel that we see through the book of Hosea. That there was no length or cost that could keep Hosea from his wife. And in the same way, that's a small and miniature reflection of your persistent love for us. That you promised to love us despite our promiscuity, despite our unfaithfulness. May you sow into our hearts the seeds of your love. May we fully understand and appreciate how much you love us, but more than that, how much you enjoy and delight in us. The truth may sink in, God, you delight in me. Despite all of my flaws and my insecurities, God, you delight in who I am. So God, may we sing and respond knowing that you love us so much. And as we sing, God, would you deepen our love for you, but also deepen the understanding that you love us in such an unearthly and inhumane way. We thank you for this truth. In your name we pray, amen.